Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I am Haney. We are Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 161, recorded on October the 5th, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We have a stacked episode for you today. Uh, first, we we seem to have misplaced Simon. Well, I know where he is, but yeah, he's uh, he's busy. Let's say that. Uh huh. It it happens. Just just have a family, and you'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Um. So first of all, we've sorted the website. Thank you so much, Katrina. Uh, she managed to explain um, HTML and CSS to me as if I am five, which I kind of felt like. And now the, the web page actually works very, very well. Super happy for that. We are today going to discuss, or you're going to talk and I'm going to listen and act as if I actually understand what you're talking about, infrastructure as code. And yes. then we're going to look at security enhancements to the Power BI log analytics preview. That's that's kind of an interesting one. Um, I think you're going to be interested in that because it, it has to do with security. We have a new um, managed virtual network going GA in Azure Data Factory. And Purview is on everybody's lips, especially since we completely missed Purview the last time we recorded. It literally went generally available like 30 minutes after we were done. I'm not at all bitter. There is a new functions runtime in Azure, and that has some interesting implications. We can do database management without admin access. I'm going to come back to that one. There is something going on in Power BI Premium per user that was actually brought to my attention this morning. And this is the week. Power BI Premium Gen 2 is going generally available. But first, let's go with infrastructure as code. Why? 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 Well, hopefully you'll know a little bit about why after we're done with the next 15 minutes. So infrastructure as code is something that I use pretty much every day at my work. I work as a DevOps consultant and I help customers to create their environments, for example, in a repeatable way so that it can be automated. And this is where infrastructure as code comes in. So what is infrastructure as code? There's kind of a few ways that it is defined and you can find a little bit varying definitions out there of it as well. But in a general way, it is a way of defining your infrastructure in a descriptive way. So you are describing what is your environment going to look like. And there is different syntax that you can use to do that description. And we'll talk about the options in a little bit. And of course, if we're doing our infrastructure in this way that we are using, essentially you have a set of files that describe what your Uh, architecture is going to look like. This means that we achieve repeatability. So if we need to get an identical environment, it's like a no-brainer. We can just create it using the same definition or make a copy of the definition and just set some variables and so forth. 
The other benefit that I really see for this is that you really get the documentation of the environment out of the box as well, because that definition is also the documentation of the environment. Your environment will correspond to that definition that you have in place. And third, we have that we can actually put this in source control. So that means that we can follow what changes have been made, and if needed, we can return to an earlier uh, state as well, and go to an earlier version of the environment. And also this means that we can work together as a team on the same files and make that make that teamwork easier and know what others have been doing and kind of combine all the different changes that we do. And sometimes when we talk about infrastructure as code, some people include scripting in it, like using PowerShell or if we're talking about Azure, the Azure CLI. But when I talk about infrastructure as code, I mean more kind of these declarative syntaxes that we have to use. And why is that? Because we actually gain a lot of benefits from having this declarative way of defining things. And because in scripting, when you're creating a script, you need to know in what order you do things. So you need to define that order that you want to proceed in. And then the other aspect there is that most of the time you need to handle errors. And also what happens if the resource is already there. And you it can get quite complex as you start building that script to really check it over and over again that you can run the script again. So that it's not just a one-time script that you run to put the environment up, but you could also use it to administer the environment as well. On the other hand, where we have these declarative languages for infrastructure as code, there we are declaring what is our desired state for that environment. So we're, for example, telling, well, we want a virtual network with these parameters and we want a virtual machine, but we're not telling in what order it should be creating those. We're just saying, make these things happen. And then the definition language knows what to do behind the scenes. So we don't need to handle any situations where those environments are already up. If we run that uh, specific configuration again, it will just check and see, well, I already have this resource. I do not have to recreate it at this point. And the other important aspect is this indempotency. So really that we can uh, run this um, configuration file again and again, and we will always have the same results, no matter what the starting state is. So really, it doesn't matter whether you have already existing resources or if you're starting from scratch, you should end up with the same result. And so if we're talking about infrastructure as code in Azure, we, of course, all might remember a thing called ARM templates, which were, of course, to weigh the way to do infrastructure as code in Azure previously. And if you've actually put your hands into ARM templates and tried to create them, it might not have been the most pleasant of experiences. I never quite got very well along with ARM templates, I have to admit, <laughs> now that I there's another option to use. But as said, there is now another option to use, which is BICEP. But what happens with BICEP is that it 
it is it actually gets transformed into an ARM template behind the scenes, and then the ARM template gets passed to Azure, which means that we have same capabilities as in ARM templates and also the same restrictions. So that's kind of our Azure native way to do things. But we also have third-party options that we can use. So we have, for example, Terraform and Plumi. I think one of the, well, two of the most commonly used options out there. I, for example, use Terraform pretty much every day. And I, I really have to say that I like Terraform. It works very well. And there you are using a declarative language for Terraform. It is the uh, HashiCorp declarative language that is in use there. And then you just do the definitions using there. But when we have these third-party solution, it means that we are not restricting ourselves only to manage Azure with this. Because for Terraform, you, for example, have different providers that you can configure. And that means that you could use Terraform for managing AWS or VMware or Azure. So you have many, many options. Whereas with ARM, you are restricted to Azure only. And the one thing that you might not think of is that actually Azure AD is not supported by ARM templates. You cannot manage Azure AD with ARM templates. You would have to go, for example, with a graph API. And that means that you cannot have the definition of your groups, for example, in your ARM template. Yes, it's kind of unintuitive, I would say. But for example, with Terraform, you can also manage Azure AD as well, because there's an Azure AD provider. The one thing I think which kind of sets uh, Bicep and ARM templates ahead of Terraform, though, is the fact that it works directly with Azure ARM. So it means that whenever there are new features, even previews, you have those available right away. Whereas Terraform uses the Go, Go SDK, so that means that it takes some time for things to get there, and oftentimes previews are not available. So sometimes you need to be waiting for features for quite some time. The good thing, though, is that there is a new version of the provider, I think, every six days. So it is updating very, very frequently. And then the last difference is that you have this state file in Terraform that you don't need in Azure. And the state in Terraform is what keeps track of what have you deployed in Azure using Terraform. So it includes all the configuration of your resources in Azure that you have created with Terraform. But if you create a resource by hand in Azure, that Terraform state will not know anything about that resource. So it includes the resources that you have created with Terraform. So there are kind of our differences between using ARM or Bicep or a third-party tool. There's for third-party tools, there's often a state file that you need to handle. Also, new features don't necessarily come quite as fast. But then for third-party solutions, you have the benefit that you can use them for many different platforms and use it to manage in your entire infrastructure, even if you're not entirely in Azure. 
And I think kind of the one thing that people don't consider so much when they're starting to work with infrastructure as code is that it actually also changes the process of how we work. If people are used to either scripting or doing things in the portal in terms of Azure, then it means that they need to change the way that it, they work and how t- how they make changes and how they kind of go through that process. So that is also an important aspect that we take into consideration. I have questions. Go ahead. <laughs> so the, the the most obvious one, it's more of a... Um observation than a question Mm -hmm. this is for infrastructure correct i mean it kind of says so on the tin infrastructure as code yes so this might be a a super stupid question but how often do you really need to recreate and work with infrastructure i mean um how how often do you need to set up a network how often do you need to set up a, a, a new database or a synapse analytics workspace or whatever what what are you using it for Well, uh, depends, of course, what kind of environment you're working with. If you're working with like a kind of a one-time setup, like a network, yes, you might just create it once normally, but there might come a time when you need to recreate it. And some someday in the future when you need to do that, it will be much faster to do so. But there are also environments where you might need to be making changes kind of constantly, a little tweaks here and there, some new resources, etc. So for example, a lot of application projects where you want, for example, a new environment for each developer to test things in. This is kind of where it really flourishes and you get the full benefit where you're actually even recreating and destroying environments on the go every day. Right, so it's it's basically a no-brainer for any testing or, or development project. So, all right. Yeah. How would you go ahead and handle stuff inside of a database, for instance? I mean, I, I, I can whip up a, or I can't, but you can, whip up a, a <laughs> bicep uh, something something to create 40 databases. But how mm-hmm. do I populate those databases with data? And is there any way to connect the two and have all of it put into source control? Well, you can have all of it's in source code, source control. But do you remember, could you create databases and users and so forth with ARM templates? No, you can't. It, it, I, yeah. I think it's the same issue with, with AD, as you said. Yeah. So then you don't have that support for Bicep either. Right. But for example, in Terraform, I just found out recently that there's this provider for handling SQL logins that you can use. So there is all kinds of providers available in Terraform, for example. And then you also have these um, local execs, for example, which means you can execute anything from your local machine as a script. So you can have some kind of script from the local machine that gets run after the infrastructure is set up. So that is also an option. And there's also remote executions. If you, for example, have a virtual machine, you can run it there as well. Okay. And another thing that I'm, I'm curious about, the old adage that you don't really need to document anything because it's all, all in, in the code. I think I heard you say pretty much the same thing with infrastructure documentation. How good is it? 
Well, I think the kind of the these long-used tools like Terraform and Plumi, they are simple the language. So it's quite easy to see what's there. And also now that we have Bicep, it's more simple than ARM templates. So it's getting there. But of course, when you have text files, it takes time to figure out, well, this resource is linked to that one and this requires that one. So I am a big <laughs> advocate of pictures, as you might know. I don't know if you've noticed, but I always recommend having at least like a high level picture of the environment, like kind of just seeing the links and things like that, not necessarily going into like the nitty gritty neat details, because if you don't have that automated, it's going to be out of date right away. But kind of an overview picture, it will be easy to keep up to date anyways. So then you have the overview picture and then the infrastructure as code files. All right. So th this is text files all through and through. Is there any reason why you wouldn't be able to create a preprocessor for, say, for instance, the, the bicep file or, or anything to automatically create this picture for you, if you will? There are some kind of graphical... Well, I totally lost the right words here, but... There is a tool that you can use to visualize Terraform. Oh. But um, the one I've used, I there might be others as well, but the one that I've used, well, once your environment gets complex, that picture also gets complex. And I'm pretty sure, yes, you could create some kind of automation to create a picture. But with most automation tools for visualization, my issue is that it's not very smart about how people visualize things the best and it just clunks things into weird order and then you have to kind of follow lines with your finger and try to figure out where is everything going. So that's just my experience. If anyone knows a good tool with for automating visualization, let's let me know definitely because I have not come across a like a really, really good one yet. That's a good point. And as, as Haney said, if, if anybody has an, an idea, shoot us an email because we want to know. Yes. Cool. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, well, in, in a way, I'm, I'm a bit sad that you kind of left the data platform fold to go play in the, the infrastructure is code area. But <laughs> I mean, we, we, we are the dark side. We have cookies. Why on earth you would go to that side but you seem you seem happy, so yes, it'll have it's to work. Fun! I like architecture, and I like making implementing that architecture as easy as possible. So I think that's it's hard the to point. argue for that. Yeah, and I let other people dapple more with the data, kind of hands on. Reasonable. So I'm going to move ahead, and I'd like to talk about in addition to something that actually came out back in June. So in Power BI, you may or may not have bought a premium workspace. And I'm pretty sure that if, if you if you have bought one, you know that because it's kind of expensive. It's very unlikely that you just buy one and kind of forget about it. But one of the, the issues, especially for the generation one of the, the, the P workspaces is that you need to figure out who's using what and what kind of load are you putting on your your workspace. 
or your your um, your capacity, I should say. And Azure Log Analytics was integrated to Power BI Premium back in June. The problem was there was no Azure AD security groups for this. So this was only available for admins and it kind of defeated the purpose. But just a couple of days ago, September the 28th, there was a pretty important enhancement to that public preview of the integration because now Microsoft does support the AD security groups for that feature, which I think will lead to um, more chance of people actually trying out and not being scared of the fact that this is a pretty big hammer. So I, I, I really like that. And other things that kind of scare me, virtual networks. <laughs> I thought you were okay with networking. Well, so that's a good point. Yes, I'm pretty okay with networking. And I, I've, I mean, I've, I've done it for quite some time. But I've also found that it becomes very complex very fast, especially around ADF, the, the different tooling, and especially Synapse. Yes. So this is referring to the Azure Data Factory managed virtual network that became generally available uh, just at the end of last month. And this is one of those features that has actually been in preview for quite a long time. Let's say surprisingly long. And yes, there has been, I guess, a little bit of issues in it along the way, but Yes, it has been also cleaning up. And so if we think about Azure Data Factory as a service, it is for moving data around and doing transformations to it. And the actual engine that is doing those transformations is the integration runtime. And this managed virtual network refers to the integration runtime. So within Azure Data Factory, you can have a managed virtual network where your integration runtime gets deployed to. And so you have this virtual network, you have your managed integration... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have your integration runtime in your managed virtual network. And if you now want to connect to your Azure data platform resources, services like an Azure SQL or an Azure Data Lake, you can connect those to those that managed virtual network with a managed private endpoint. So it's not the regular kind of endpoint that you create. It's a managed virtual. Managed, Welcome to my world. Ah, uh, managed private endpoint that you create from Azure Data Factory for that particular service. And it, it has nothing to do with private link. It is the same thing, but you just managed it from ADF. So you cannot go to the, let's say you're trying to connect Azure SQL. You cannot go to the Azure SQL and create it from there. You have to be in ADF and go to the virtual network there, the managed VNet, and create the managed private endpoint from there. It will then show up in the actual Azure resources in the list of private endpoints as well for that resource. All right. Did you catch that? I, I did. I did. Um, <laughs> Too many managed everywhere. <laughs> it definitely because one of the the 
trickier aspects of ADF is to figure out how is the traffic going to flow between this orchestration service mm -hmm. and the different services and my, perhaps if I'm using something on-prem and whatever. So so in a way, this, this is a good piece of the puzzle that is now generally available. Yeah. So this is kind of coming in between having the self-hosted integration runtime and the Azure hosted one. Because the regular Azure hosted one, it's just you would have to open up uh, traffic to allow traffic from Azure resources to get that working for, for an Azure SQL, for example. But now you can have it in the managed virtual network and have the private endpoint, which make it, makes it much, much easier. Indeed. So speaking of another thing that became generally available, and that's um, Purview. Yes. But yes. did it really? Well, yes, it did become generally available. <laughs> I don't have to try to say Purview in preview anymore, at least. <laughs> so what became generally available is the data map and data catalog. So the data map is what includes the rules of like, how are you scanning your uh, data sources and how are you also putting categorizations in them? And then data catalog is kind of a visualization for that. So it's kind of built on top of the data map. And those are the two features that became generally available. And there is... Um, still kind of the focus and emphasis of the data sources that is supported is of course microsoft focused like there's all the azure data services there you can even link your azure data factory or synapse pipelines here so you can see lineage like how are your how is your data moving from one resource to the other and there are some services that are from other platforms as well and my guess is that it's going to keep expanding and expanding as we go forward. Yeah, because that's I, I, what I was going to say, that Purview, just like Synapse, is a, a toolbox, if you will. And there are only small bits and pieces of Purview that are generally available, just like yeah. when Synapse came out. The only thing that actually worked in Synapse was the old data warehouse that got a new coat of paint. Yeah, exactly. So it's. I think it's going to start coming more and more generally available piece by piece. So it's going to become more generally available. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think we <laughs> might find the name of this episode, More Generally Available. I didn't know that it was a sliding scale, but what do I know? Well, it kind of is, if you think about it. <laughs> Indeed. Now, I'm, I'm curious to, um, to see what's going to come out of Purview, because there, there are some glaring omissions in purview like master data management or data quality service all that's that stuff has basically been left behind since sql server mm -hmm. well, i don't know 2012 so it is woefully in inadequate but i've also seen um there, there at a couple of sites there was this um kind of a um, roadmap thingy graphic and i did see data quality and master data management on those. So I'm I'm curious to see what what we'll see when 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 they get here. Uh, but they they do need to step up. Oh, uh, we also have a new public preview of uh, the Azure Functions runtime, and 
why on earth would I be talking about this? Some people think, well, it does happen that I have been known to um, write Python. And equally surprising, most of the time it actually works. The code that I write, actually. Uh, the thing that's been bothering me is I didn't think so much about versions. So I happily started writing stuff in, in Python 3.9. Does Python 3.9, is that supported in the present Azure Functions runtime? No. Did I figure that out the hard way? Yes. Yes, I did. But with the function runtime 4.0, which is in public preview as of September the 22nd, we now have, for instance, .NET 6, which is kind of cool. Uh, Node.js 14, Python 3.7, 3.8, and 3.9. Hello. Uh, Java 8 and 11, and PowerShell 7, which is kind of cool. And they are looking at a general availability in November, uh, coinciding with the GA release of .NET 6. So it, it's That's getting pretty there. soon. Yeah. It is. It is. Really looking forward to that one. It's it's a small thing, but it's it's a, it's a huge thing, but a small thing. Yeah. A long time ago, there was a discussion about Azure SQL Server and, and privileges. We faced kind of the same issue with privileges as we do with infrastructure as code. There are no ARM templates, if you will. You, you can't modify uh, privileges inside of Azure SQL Server, for instance, using ARM because it's not based off the RBAC system. And this comes from the fact that SQL Server has been along, around since, oh, I don't know, time immemorial, and it has always had its own security aspect. But one thing that has been touted as kind of the holy grail is to integrate Azure SQL Server and RBAC, so role-based access control inside of Azure. And this actually came out some time ago. I need to check when. Actually, in the beginning of September. So there are now a few server roles for Azure SQL Database. That means that you can do database management without having to be a full database manager, a full sysadmin kind of um, um, manager. That is a huge step forward for governance, for... for um, basically keeping track of who can do what. And this is just the beginning. Um, I've had a conversation with Andreas Walter, who is the, the PM for this. He used to be a, a um, an MVP. Uh, and I know just how much work they've put into this. So this is just the beginning. It's going to be a lot more. And I think it is a fantastic step in the right direction. I'll, I'll just cover the, the last Portion first, Power BI Premium Generation 2 is generally available as of this week, and you definitely want to go turn it on in your, your tenant if you haven't done so already. It's a no-brainer. It is a huge step forward. You're no longer constrained to your pretty small environment as you had it, because if, if Gen 2 is shared, Gen 1 is not. Gen 1, compared to Gen 2, is, uh, shall we say, small and stuffy. So Gen 2 is definitely the way to go. We also have the, the little brother, if you will, to 
Power BI Premium, and that is Power BI Premium per user. Premium per user gives you almost all of the benefits of premium without the sharing to basically anyone and everything. But this morning, sometime during the night, there was an update to the documentation. And that update basically says, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote, Premium per user is an entry-level Power BI Premium product and has limited power and throttling limits that scale with the number of licenses purchased. If you experience throttling as a PPU user or need more computing power for your applications, you should consider using premium capacity. Let's just say that this uh, stirred up some um, emotions. Not um, surprising. Yeah, no, so this is a unfortunate way of putting things. Um, I've asked about this internally and at, at the time of, of this recording, there doesn't seem to be any actual changes having been made. Um, so what, according to the, the information that I have so far, is that this was an update of the documentation, but the underlying architecture has not changed in any meaningful fashion. But it is kind of a poor choice of word in my view. I'm sure we haven't seen the last of this yet. Uh, there is a, a, a very active discussion going on. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to um, to hear what's going to come out of it. And we'll we'll update when we know more, pretty much. Yeah, very interesting. Because it sounds like it would be a change, but then it's possibly something that has been happening all along. I mean, the way that Gen 2 works is that it definitely does throttling. And I mean, that that's the way you have to do it when you have a shared environment. But yeah. I'm curious to know what this means for a PPU environment, because you don't even have the the big capacity. You just have access to the compute cores of the, uh, of the, of the premium sort of kind of capacity. So I, yeah. I hope to find some in-depth discussion about this, because it's um, at the moment I'm, I'm confused. Not that that is very unusual in itself, but I'm I'm confused. <laughs> well, yeah, I I guess I haven't been thinking of Power BI Premium per user enough to be confused. <laughs> no, because you're all spending all your time in the infrastructure sandbox. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Editing Alexander here. So Amir Netz, a technical fellow at Microsoft and the CTO of Microsoft Analytics, has responded to the PPU discussion. And he says the following on Twitter. Let's clear it up. The bullet is incorrect in both spirit and substance, and we will correct it. PPU is not an entry-level offering, neither in terms of capabilities nor power. The only entry-level element of PPU referred to the very low cost of entry. We do have an anti-abuse mechanism associated with PPU that will throttle extreme or unreasonable behavior of a user. But these throttle limits are incredibly generous. So, no issues. Keep going. Speaking of uh, thinking about things and, and finding new challenges, we're going to Belgium next week. Yay! That is have exciting. You? It is fantastically exciting. Have you looked up the uh, 
how how you actually go about flying these days? Uh, I saw some very complex-looking instructions, which I didn't read yet, <laughs> and I yeah, should probably read soon. I would assume. Yeah, I mean the 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 COVID vaccination proof uh, that that's a no-brainer. But apparently, yeah. the way I read it, you need to fill in some form when you go to Belgium. You might actually not have to. Um, I think it's a cutoff of 48 hours. I'm going to be more than 48 hours. Yeah, uh-huh. you're going to be more than 48 hours as well. Yeah, I should Yeah, be. so you, you probably have to fill it in. Huh. Interesting. Good to know. I'll read the fine print. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And of course, we're going to enjoy masks uh, on, on the flight and in the airport and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's going to yeah. be... It's going to be so strange. It has been two years since I was on a plane last. Yeah. It, about the same, I think. Very strange. Yeah, the last time I flew anywhere was actually going to Helsinki, going to uh, Tektes. Yeah, that's true. And then for me, I before COVID started, I was going to be going to Data Grillen in May. I think. Yeah. And then COVID hit and then I've just been talking online. <laughs> yeah. This entire time. <laughs> so we'll see how awkwardly I just stare at my laptop when there's people in the room. <laughs> it'll it'll be different. Um you you have an edge since you're a trainer and and a, you used to be a teacher, but I know for a fact that there are there're going to be a lot of new speakers who came on the scene, if you will, during the pandemic that are going to find out the hard way that it is very different to stand on a stage. Um, yeah. Not saying that it's harder or easier. It's it's just different. Yeah. And, and you can't read verbatim from your, your notes either. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be difficult. Yeah, and if... Anyone got really excited about the infrastructure as code stuff? That's what I'll be talking about in Belgium. So oh, you're going to do that one? That one, yes. Yeah. Terraform stuff. I. Is that the one I've seen? <laughs> I have no idea. Because you've done that previously, correct? Yes. Though it will be a little different. So. Ah. Yeah, then again, two, so two runs of a session are yeah. not going to be the same anyway, so. No, and it has been adjusted. It has been adjusted. Yes. All right. Yeah, I'm going to be pulling off a completely new session, the audience conductor, adding senses and emotions to your, your presentations. That's going to be a lot of fun. I've never done that um, before this, this session. I've, I've had it in the back of my head for years. Um, so it's, it's going to be, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that it was that clever to start with this after the pandemic, but yeah. So I can come and listen to your session and then I can get people to get emotions about infrastructure as code since I'm doing a session after you. If you pick up on, (laughs) on all the details that fast, yes, you can. All right. That's a plan. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's... I think it's an interesting concept because most mm-hmm. of the time it's easy to equate technical stuff with 
dry, boring code. Just where we're, we we kind of lack the emotional impact. We lack the the connection to people. But as we always keep coming back to, all of these things are tools. And at the end of the day, we are trying to achieve a business goal, or we are trying trying to achieve an outcome. Yeah. And an outcome is always connected to another human being in some way, shape, or form. So there, there's there are so many stories out there that can easily be told when it comes to technical stuff. And yes, definitely. depending on how you decide to do so, you're going to get more or less emotional impact. Then again, if if your your audience cries when they leave after having listened <laughs> to uh, to Pulumi or or Terraform, well. It yes. might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing, but I'm not, pretty sure that it would be unique. Not probably what I'm aiming for, I have to say. <laughs> You're not aiming for your audience crying. No, I'm not. Okay. It's it's good to have uh, a goal. <laughs> yes. No crying. No crying. That's and the I think goal. <laughs> on that, it is actually time to end. Uh, you'd be surprised how fast time actually flies. Very fast. Always. It always does so. So every time Simon and I do this, we always look at the the OneNote and go, dude, we're not going to have enough. And every darn time, not only do we have enough, we have too much. So yeah, that's that's kind of the way it works. So yeah. thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks because uh, next week we're going to be in, in Belgium. And hopefully we'll be able to sort Simon as well at that time. That would be good. Yes. Have a great time and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Need Even Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at